Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Neoplatonism, Plotinus, and the One. Now, this is an important concept for Christianity because most of modern Christian metaphysics is based explicitly off of Plotinus. I say explicitly because Augustine admits it as much, and his friends write to him, and he says that uh, basically your writings are filled with uh, Jesus and Plato and Plotinus. Augustine's writings are filled with Plotinus. So it's important to understand Plotinus's theology about who God is and uh, understand his conception of the one. And we could compare that to modern Christian theological takes on the nature and character of God, which are fairly identical. So number one, Plotinus tells us that the one is above all predicates. This is from Lloyd Gerson's Plotinus. This is probably the best book on Plotinus out there. It's a pretty thick volume and it is pretty dense. This guy knows what he's talking about. If uh, I was to pick one absolute expert on Plotinus, this would be the guy. So this is the authority that we are quoting. And he'll tell us when he's giving his own opinions on things. He'll talk about Plotinus's treatment of Plato. And he'll tell us how Plotinus viewed Aristotle and what elements of Aristotle that Plotinus incorporated and at what parts of Plato Plotinus incorporated. And he's, he's generous as well to Plotinus because he doesn't always believe that Plotinus lines up with Plato's metaphysics, but he gives them the benefit of the doubt because we're all interpreters of Plato. And Plotinus is giving us a system and Plotinus considered himself a follower of Plato. He was not in his mind, inventing new things. Like it or not, uh, he considers himself a uh, Platonist, just teaching the metaphysics of Plato and not innovating. But he was innovative, and he did have a lasting influence on the modern world. The entire world is in his shadow when it comes to the Christian picture of God. Even Islam, even Islam has those taints. Plotinus tells us, this is uh, Lloyd Gerson, it's what Lloyd Gerson writes, Plotinus tells us that the one is above all predicates. So the one is something that can't be described. You can't uh, give God parts. You can't give him descriptions that add any meaning to God. God is above intellect. And you'll see this echoed in Christian metaphysics where God is ineffable. This is a fairly standard value. If uh, people don't know what that is, I believe we have a whole episode talking about Christian ineffability. This is a Christian value, Christian, but it's, it has Platonic origins. What Plotinus means, however, is that nothing can be said of the one that implies composition. That is, I hold the composition of essence and existence. You can't give God composition parts. You can't do that. You can't make them other than simple, simplex. It is sheer confusion to deduce from the denial of all predication of the one that it does not exist at all. But this is not so because Plotinus thinks that existence is a special type of predicate. So a lot of times I'm going to be quoting uh, Lloyd Gerson and we're going to be skipping over some of the text and going to important call-out points. His next uh, sentence that I highlighted is this, It is sheer confusion to deduce from the denial of all predication of the one that it does not exist at all. But this is not so because Plotinus thinks that existence is a special type of predicate. So existence is a special type of predicate. 
God does exist in the mind of Plotinus, but that's not giving God predication. And we can't just say, oh, since God has no predicates, then God doesn't exist. Uh, that would be a denial of, of what, what Plotinus is trying to get at with his metaphysics. Again, I, I'm not saying I endorse any of his metaphysics here. We're just discussing Plotinus's system, trying to get in his mind. So here's a lengthy quote from Plotinus on this issue. How then do we ourselves speak about it? We do indeed say something about it, but we certainly do not speak it. And we have neither knowledge nor thought of it. But if we do not have it in knowledge, do we have it not at all? But we have it in such a way that we speak about it, but do not speak it. For we can say what it is not, but we do not say what it is, so that we speak about it from what comes after it. So Plotinus is giving us a fairly standard definition of negative theology. You can only communicate things about God in a negative sense. Like what kind of a power does God have? He has all power. There's nothing that he cannot do. Uh, what kind of a location does he have? He doesn't have location. He's above location. He's omnipresent. Uh, and that's what the definition of omnipresence mean is he's above location. God is defined by what he is not. We could talk about him in negatives. We could talk about him existing. That's a special type of predicate, uh, but only really in negatives. We can't have meaningful thought about what God is. We see this type of mentality flow into Christianity. Maybe you're talking to someone about the nature and character of God, and they'll say, God is above our understanding. Our, our finite minds can't comprehend him. This is how it manifests in layman Christians. And they might not be familiar with uh, the definitions of ineffability, the concept of ineffability, but somehow or another, this has flowed into their vocabulary, which is this is how they starve off criticism. They've learned this as a defense mechanism. We just can't understand with our puny minds, God. From the incompositeness of the one, it follows its simplicity. And we have an entire episode on simplicity, I believe we do, where God cannot have parts. Parts uh, create dependencies, and dependencies mean God can decay, degrade. Lloyd Gerson actually describes this further. Further, the simplicity of the one is not to be equated with emptiness or complete abstractness like a mere conceptual placeholder. It is not lacking anything possessed by any complex. On the contrary, it possesses everything, but not in such a way as to entail complexity. So in Plotinus's model, the one encompasses the whole world. The one is sustaining the world. Everything is created within the one. That's why in some uh, Neoplatonist charts, you might see the one on the outside ring. And everything that's created is uh, these descending circles inside the one because the one sustains everything. Everything is created in the one. The one is composed of all things, but it's not a composite thing. Everything finds existence in the one. From the simplicity of the one, Plotinus deduces its self-sufficiency. God doesn't need anything from outside himself. This you will hear in Christianity quite often when talking to individuals like Calvinists, that God can't gain from us. God can't derive pleasure from us. He can't uh, get something of value to make him better. If God was deficient in any respect, he would not be God. 
What is not simple depends upon its components. And this, this is where he's, Lloyd Gerson is describing the simplicity that we already described, that complexity causes dependencies. What is not simple depends upon its components as a condition of its existence. That which is uniquely without components is self-sufficient. If God isn't self-sufficient, if he has parts, those parts can break down. Those parts can move. Those parts have dependencies. Then God has dependencies. God is not God. Therefore, God is simple. God can't have those parts. That which is uniquely without components is self-sufficient. That 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 which is not self-sufficient depends not merely upon its components, but ultimately upon the one for its existence comes under the heading of the one's operational attributes. Skipping forward, thus the one is necessarily a say. Remember the word a seity or a seity, whereas other things are necessarily ab alio. God can't have dependencies outside himself. God can't uh, rely on other things that would cause deficiencies in God. God is self-sufficient. God is, is self-existent. God can't, if, if God were to depend on something else, that would create dependencies. He wouldn't be self-sufficient. He wouldn't be self-existent anymore. He could be related to other things. He has dependencies on other things. He gains from other things that causes complexity. So all these attributes, all these attributes are interwoven. Ineffability, simplicity, and here, aseity, pure actuality, God is pure act. And we'll be talking about that further on. The one is also perfect. This language here, the perfection, is very much Platonistic. This uh, hails from the Republic in which Plato starts talking about what makes something perfect or what makes something deficient and change makes something deficient. When Christians start talking about that which is changes cannot be perfect, it has to be less than perfect, therefore God cannot change, that formulation is from Plato. It's Platonistic. And so perfection language and people try to get uh, get you in a gotcha. They, they say, oh, is God perfect? But they want to load it with these theological assumptions. Their perfection is Platonic perfection, not the common understanding of the word perfection. So if you refuse to uh, affirm their categories, that they'll say, oh, you don't think God is perfect, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but uh, what they want to do is they want to have Platonic perfection. So a better way to handle that maybe is, yeah, um, we, let's not do the non-central fallacy. God is perfect, using the normal definition that refers to his goodness, that God is righteous and good. It doesn't refer to unchangingness. It doesn't refer to immutability in the biblical worldview. So when you're in the Bible and you're looking at claims about God's perfection, that's in relation to righteousness. It's not in relation to Platonic unchangingness, Platonic simplicity, Platonic pure actuality. The one is perfect owing to its own essence. This implies that essence in everything besides the one entails imperfection. Change means imperfection. Complexity means imperfection. The perfection of the one derives from the fact that there is eternally no gap between what the one is or what the one can or will be. There's no change in the one. Immutability and God doesn't have potency, the ability to be other, potentiality. He's pure actuality. Whatever God is, God is. God cannot be other than what God is, which creates some problems that are addressed in Plotinus and also in Lloyd Gerson, where you're fighting about how, how creation works. 
Remember in our book by Dwezel about God's simplicity and pure actuality, he appeals to mystery. How can God create the universe with potentiality if God is pure actuality? How can he choose between options? And he appeals to mystery. And Plotinus kind of basically does the same thing. You have to, you have to try to build some sort of mechanism to shield God from possibility because God is pure actuality and can't actualize between options. Whatever the options that are actualized are the only options. Anything else would uh, assume some sort of defect in the one, in creation, in who God is. This phrase is interesting. The notion of perfection is a common currency in Greek philosophy, I would say. Scrolling down, the one is the most powerful of all beings precisely because there is no impediment to its being or acting. Supreme power would also fall from self-sufficiency since an impediment would involve dependency of some sort. Nothing can thwart the one. Nothing can thwart God. Nothing can be in his way. There's no obstacles to overcome. There's a supreme power. Uh, there's a supreme creation which cannot be thwarted according to the, the supreme will. The, these are Calvinistic concepts that we, we see. When, when, when we read about Platonism, when we lead, read Lloyd Garrison, a Platonistic scholar on Plotinus, talking about uh, what Platonism entails in the one, a lot of similar themes to Calvinism pops up. The entire world is created from God's unalterable will, and it actualizes exactly as God wants it to, without giving anything back to God. It just Creation reflects God's glory rather than gives him something that he was lacking. He doesn't relate to his own creation. Creation is an eternal, simple act that's identical with his essence. These are Platonic concepts. They're, they're not going to be found in the biblical worldview, but they are found in Plotinus and fairly explicitly. Scrolling down, the one is evidently eternal. I say evidently because Plotinus does not actually say that it is. Plotinus, remember he had nine Aeneids. There's, there's a lot of works that he probably, uh, sermons and lectures that he gave that might be unrecorded, but we got nine of them and uh, none of them say that uh, the one is eternal. We have to infer it from his other writings. It is undeniable that the one is eternal if only because whatever is eternal is for Plotinus superior to what is in time in any way, and because that upon which the eternal depends obviously cannot itself be in time. Since the intellect is eternal in Plotinus, and the intellect depends on the one, it logically follows that in Plotinus's model, the one is itself eternal. It's outside of time. The, the whole world, uh, we, we get statements where the entire world actualizes based on an eternal will of the one. The one is infinite. This means that it is without form of any sort. The one can't have form. The one can't have shapes. It can't be in space such as you can give it location. It can give it a relationship to other objects. The one is omnipresent, omnipresent but it, not in such a way that it gives itself to space. It's not in space. Further, what is absolutely incomposite cannot be finite, because anything finite is analyzable into what it is limited and the limiting principle. Hence, all and only finite things are not absolutely incomposite. God has to be incomposite. So, when we read early Christian philosophers and their dealings with the Jews, the Jews were under the impression that God had a body. And they utterly rejected this. Christians utter, utterly rejected this. You see them fighting 
Jews on this point. You see Basil, you see Justin Martyr mocking the Jews on this point because to them, in Platonism, form implies imperfection. Form implies a change, degradation, dependencies, and so all these things need to be rejected. God has to be incorporeal, without form, in any sense. It can't be a spiritual form. It can't be a physical form. It can't have delimitations on it. It can't be located anywhere. These types of predicates would cause dependencies on God. Therefore, God is omnipresent in such a way that he's not in space-time. The one is everywhere or omnipresent. What this certainly does not imply is pantheism. Plotinus's preferred way of making this point is to add that the one is nowhere as well. The one is everywhere and the one is nowhere. It, it's really above predicates. Scrolling down, one reason why Plotinus blithely conflates the form of the good and his own primary arxe, the beginning, is that his belief that Plato himself identified the former with the subject of the first hypothesis of the second part of Paramenes, namely an ineffable one having neither essence nor any predicate. This paragraph here I highlighted just because it shows Plotinus's mindset when he's reading Plato, and so he'll conflate different aspects from different parts of Plato's work and assume meaning in it and maybe extend it uh, based on what he expected Plato to believe about these concepts, which are not necessarily in Plato's text themselves, but can be pieced together. Maybe if you're in Plato's mindset, maybe Plato's not entirely explicit, and maybe Plato's being a little bit coy, not not writing the full thing he believes, as he's ought to do. There's there's a the famous letter from Aristotle to Alexander the Great that basically says oh, all these mysteries are in Aristotle's writings, but uh, I we we don't uh, expound on them because uh, we're trying to keep them a mystery because mystery cults were a big thing. You know, so that, that's, a, that's a deal too. Plotinus might be reading Plato in that sense, in which he takes these different concepts from these different works about different subjects and pushes them together and tries to make sense of it and systemizes Plato in a way, maybe, maybe beyond the scope of what Plato himself was trying to communicate. So let's talk about uh, God's bulamai, God's will. This is a word we find in the Bible. This will is identified with its activity. Of course, these attributes are to be understood with the crucial qualification that their application is not to be taken to imply compositeness in any way. God's simplicity takes priority. God's immutability takes priority. God's incompositeness takes priority over God's action. In the Will Duffy-Matt Slick debate, uh, Will Duffy's asking Matt Slick if God can make one more raindrop in a storm. Can God do make one new butterfly? Can God design a new butterfly, write a new song? And Matt Slick uh, wouldn't answer. He just avoided the question because he didn't want to say no. In Platonism, the one has actualized everything that can be actualized, everything that it can do, and there's not a possibility for a different actualization. And so everything that happens is by the will of the one. Everything is actualized in a way that uh, conforms to the, the greatest creation of the one, but uh, the other things cannot happen. The one can't do new things. The, the, the one can't have potency or potentiality to create something that's uncreated. 
the one is pure act the one is pure actuality it can't do other than what it has done or other than what it will do it's eternal and timeless and there's there's no possibility of adding something that hasn't before been added that would add potentiality that would add choices between options and for this reason too uh, Plotinus denies that the one can have discursive thought discursive thought is one thing that I was talking about fairly fairly uh, hard hitting on my debate about Isaiah where Isaiah is depicting God as having discursive thought this is denied in classical theism about God God cannot have discursive thought one thought can't lead to another that would create compositeness that would deny simplicity that would make God mutable as opposed to immutable God would uh, not have omniscience he wouldn't know all things, but would have to come to deliberations through a sequence of events. One thought precedes another. This is change. This destroys this platonic concept of God. He writes, but it is here precisely that one wants to say that compositeness is unequivocally essential to having life or will, in which case such attributes may be merely gratuitous or honorific as applied to the one, but philosophically groundless. And so when Christians might argue with a Calvinist and say that God is dynamic, God is living, and living implies change, implies the ability to do new things, involves potential. Uh, the Calvinists will defer to Platonic arguments that God is life, but uh, life in a different sense than what we mean by it. That God is living and dynamic, sure, but that doesn't mean he changes or does new things. He is life in itself. He is the essence of life, which bestows life to all things, and that way he's living, not that he's changing, breathing, learning, and interacting. Since the primary effect of the one's activity is that everything else exists, the one must contain everything else within it in some way. This containment is just casual dependence, but the one must also be the sort of thing upon which everything can be casually dependent. So, if the life of any sort exists owing to the one's casual activity, the one in some sense possesses life. You'll hear this in sermons that God upholds all things and, and everything would come crashing down if God doesn't uphold it. In this sense, this is a Platonic notion in which the one sustains all things. All things are created, all the essence of everything that exists is upheld in the one. And Christians, they, they take some of Paul's uh, statements and they, they turn it into this Neoplatonic concept in which God is continuously, all things gain existence and continue existence in a metaphysical way within God. Whereas Paul is probably meaning that God is the sovereign. God is the ruler of all. God decides what happens and when. Probably not this Platonic concept that everything literally is, is in some sense upheld by the essence of God. That the whole universe is within God in that way. That God is the sustainer in a metaphysical way. We scroll down and here's where Lloyd Gerson talks about uh, discursive thought. The crucial step in Plotinus's alteration of Aristotle's argument is in his insistence that if the good is achieved by thinking, then there is a distinction between the good in itself and the good that is achieved by thinking. The justification for the step, as we shall see more fully in the next chapter, is that thinking is essentially a complex activity and so is not unqualifiably self-explanatory. 
So thinking, going from one thought to another, it's complex. It's not simple. So if God has thoughts, he has dependencies, he has parts. He's not simple. So talking about the one's intellect, his thought, the one neither thinks of itself, as does Aristotle's God, nor thinks of anything else, which would, of course, be inferior to it. God cannot have thought. Thoughts imply discursive reasoning. One thing leads to another. God can't have that type of intelligence. It has to be a different type altogether. We read this. This is so because thinking implies an imperfection, specifically non-identity between thinker and object of thinking. Since thinking is goal-directed and since thinking is a kind of identification between subject and object, even perfect thinking is not unqualified perfection because of residual duality between subject and object must remain. If God had thoughts about objects, there would be inter-object dependency. That's what this is saying. To move from this conclusion to the further conclusion that that the one is beyond cognition altogether requires the premise that all cognition entails the imperfection of thinking. The one is above cognition. Remember, in classical theology, God knows everything uh, in one e in eternal act that's identical to his essence. He doesn't gain information from outside himself. He just inherently has all propositional knowledge. William Lane Craig is on that video declining uh, that a type of uh, experiential knowledge in God. God has propositional knowledge of all things. He doesn't think about things. He doesn't have discursive reasoning. Instead, he just knows by virtue of his essence, his being, not from outside himself. Just as it is wrong to assume that because the one is beyond limited essence, as no essence nor does not exist, it is wrong to assume that because the one is beyond intellect and intellect's activity, it has no cognition. To move from this conclusion to the further conclusion that the one is beyond cognition altogether requires the premise that all cognition entails the imperfection of thinking. Just as it is wrong to assume that because the one is beyond limited essence, as no essence nor does essence not exist, it is wrong to assume that because the one is beyond intellect and intellect's activity, it has no cognition. So the one has like an unlimited cognition. In classical theology, God's knowledge is uh, unique, ungenerated, and it's a propositional knowledge of all things. There's no discursive thought. There's no gain from outside himself. This is the type of knowledge that uh, Plato, or Plotinus here, he wants to ascribe to the one, that God can't have thoughts. God can't have thinking, but he has a cognition that's above intellectual thought. He has a cognition that's above discursive reasoning. That's the type of omniscience given to the one. The central operational attribute of the one is that it is or has activity, although predictably enough, Plotinus adds that the one is above activity. So in Calvinism, for example, if you want to conceptualize this, they say that God can't act. God can't uh, do something other than what he has eternally decreed. He's done everything in one eternal decree and uh, is doesn't doesn't have actual activity. He can't do new things. He's, he's not actively working and changing. He's immutable, eternal, outside of time. All things are done in one eternal act. This is Plotinus's idea of the one, that the one is pure act, but has no activity. Why? Because activity makes God it gives him possibilities, probabilities. It gives him potency. It gives him uh, potentiality to be other than what he is. Plotinus agrees with Aristotle that the first principle of all must be without potency. 
So much is deductible from the one's perfection. Indeed, if there were no more to this matter than this, then the attributes of an aregamia to the one would add little to its hypothesized perfection. We scroll down and we get an example from Plotinus, but in Lloyd Gerson's words, the first he calls the activity which is the thing itself, and the second the activity which comes from the thing. And so God has this pure actuality activity, and the activity that we see in the real world is just a secondary activity. The later is a necessary consequence of the former, but different from it. For example, the heat of a fire is its first activity, and the heat radiating from the fire is the second. So there's a fire which causes radiating heat. One is caused by the other. And in Plotinus, God's ineffable, immutable, eternal activity is a perfect perfection and simple, but the entire world and the activity that we see around us is the radiation of that eternal will. In, in Plotinus, God has an ineffable eternal decree by which all things follow. That, that, that's Plotinus's idea here. We scroll down to Plotinus's uh, creation account. Uh, because the one can't actually have activity, the one has to create in a way, such a way that that everything that comes from the one is not through the one's own doing. The whole world is spawned basically by an overflowing outpouring of good of the one. That's how the world is created. This we may say is the first act of generation. The one, perfect because it seeks nothing, has nothing, and needs nothing, overflows. And as it were, and its superabundance makes something other than itself. These are the words of Plotinus. Creation is an outflowing. It's a reflection. All things that exist then come from the intellectual principle which spawns the material world. But how is that one, the principle of all things? It is because as a principle it keeps them in being, making each one of them be. Yes, and because it caused them to be. And so this is that idea of sustaining the world itself, though everything is contained in the one. That's how the one is the principle of all things. Lloyd Gerson Plotinus contrasts acting by necessity and acting on the base of, basis of discursive reasoning. Oh, oh, listen to that. This should lead us to conclude that the necessity as attributed to creation by Plotinus and necessity as denied of God's acting by Aquinas do not mean the same thing. And so Plotinus has acting by necessity as a different thing than normal discursive reasoning. God has pure act. That second phrase there about Aquinas, uh, necessity is defined as something that can't be otherwise. And so uh, Aquinas has to dis deny that the world is created by necessity because that makes the world God. Only God is a necessary being. And so Plotinus is just using a, a quite, little bit different definition. Not necessarily that he agreed, disagreed in concept with Aquinas that the world was created and could not, not be created. Uh, instead, that they're using different definitions of that world. Creation is not by necessity in Aquinas, nor, nor is it in Doesel. We talked about that a little bit. That would make mankind on the same status as God. Me, I would be necessary if creation is necessary. And in classical Christian theology, not necessarily in Plotinus, uh, it might be different categories there. Scrolling down another 
quote by Plotinus on the method of creation, this intellect, when it has come into being, turns its back upon the one and is filled and becomes intellect by looking towards it. So the intellect is a change. It's an outpouring from the one and it tries to turn back to the one to become unchanging and it freezes. And from that outpours the soul, the material world, the things that are changing that operates on this third sphere. Uh, the God has to be insulated from the change by multiple levels. This is why the Gnostics have the various uh, eons that uh, descend from God. Some of them have like 50 of them. Some of them have like 14 different levels between God and creation. It insulates God from the change. This is a very Platonistic concept. This is Plotinus's metaphysic so that we see in operation. Its halt and turning towards the one constitutes being. Its gaze upon the one, intellect. Since it halts and turns towards the one, it may see, it becomes at once intellect and being. Resembling the one, thus intellect produces likeness, pouring forth a multiple power. This is an image of it, just as which was before it poured it forth. This activity springing from the essence of intellect is soul. The soul is the material world which comes to be this while intellect abides unchanged. For intellect too comes into being while that which is before it abides unchanging. The soul does not abide unchanging. When it produces, it is moved and so brings forth an image. The material world is changed. The material world is a degradation. The material world is evil. Uh, the, the evil is the lack of uh, the good. The good doesn't actually create the evilness. Evil could be an extraction or abstraction or negation of the good. It's, it's non-being, non-existence. It is that change is the evil. Scrolling down, we got another quote about Plotinus, Aquinas, and the creation. This is an important objection, one which strikes a vital nerve. It is precisely owing to a suspected denial of omnipotence or omnipotence in Christian creation metaphysics born of the Platonian tradition that Aquinas refuses to join instrumentality with creation. Aquinas uses Platonistic metaphysics. This is what he's saying. Aquinas is basing his metaphysics on Plotinus to claim that creation isn't made by necessity. It doesn't doesn't require potency in God or a potentiality in God. God doesn't act necessarily. It doesn't, you can't create those dependencies. You have to sever those links. This is a Platonistic value that Aquinas adopts. Uh, per Loy Gerson, I think he knows what he's talking about. Scrolling down, Plotinus, however, cannot express the one's activity as resting on a relation between two things. So when God creates, there, there can't be a relation there. There can't be God's actually actively acting to create. Because the one is not a thing at all. It is not possessed of compositeness that thinghood requires. So it cannot be a term of a relation among or between things. This would seem to fall directly from its necessary uniqueness. To have a real relation to something if it is necessary to be sufficiently complex to be distinct from that in virtue of what there is a relation. So nothing can be compared on the same level as God. This is, this is due to God's simplicity, his ineffability. He can't have distinction. He can't have predicate. And this is just further emphasizing that fact. Moving on to omnipotence, Plotinus certainly emphasizes the idea of supreme power in his characterizations of the one. What precisely is this power supposed to be? How is power to be analyzed? First, as the text in 
uh, 5, 3, 15, 33 through 6 indicates Plotinus takes over Aristotle's distinctions between passive and active power, identifying the latter one with the one. Secondly, the power of the one is indicated by its results, namely the existence of everything that can exist. But since the existence of everything that exists is not identical with the one, the one's power is evidently that in virtue of which everything else exists. But this power is in no way really distinguishable from anything else in the one. Else, its perfect simplicity would be destroyed. Remember, everything hinges on simplicity, immutability, ineffability, uh, these, these ideas, pure actuality. This is what would destroy God if he, if he could do something other than what he has done. He is pure act. He's pure act, and as such, he's created the entire world to exist. You can't add potentiality into that. It is the power to cause to exist everything that can exist, including eternal intellect and forms. Without the causal power of the one, even eternal truths would not exist. All truths exist in God. You'll hear Calvinists adopting some of this language that the laws of logic find its basis in God. And he actually talks about that. We're probably not going to read that quote specifically that the laws of logic are retained in the essence of God. But that's Plotinus's position. It's a very Platonic position. Since the one has a life and is engaged in activity, it seems perfectly natural to Plotinus to raise the question of whether or not the one has a will and whether it exercises it freely. In fact, he devotes one entire lengthy treatise, 6 8 to this question the way he sets up the problem is most instructive previous argument has established that the one is omnipotent omnipotence here means i believe that the one has the power to endow with existence every possibility it is able to cause the existence of whatever can exist this still leaves the question of whether what the one does is in its power, a question which is particularly pointed if the one never withholds its production. Gerson's pointing on a very interesting uh, point, the one that you can leverage against Calvinists, such as Duazel, that could God have created a different world than he did create? Everything that is created is created for an eternal purpose in Calvinism, in uh, Platonism, and can't be other when it is. God must create everything that he must create. Scrolling down, Plotinus identifies the will of the one with its essence and activity. Elsewhere, Plotinus insists that the will in the one is not the result of its desire for any good since it's the source of goodness for everything else. The one can't have desires, the one can't have needs, the one can't gain from outside itself. So in Platonist metaphysics, God can't gain from outside himself. So the world isn't made by his goodness, for his goodness, for his own desires and values. Instead, the definition of will is what God does. In Calvinism, just using Calvinism as an example so that we could conceptualize this, that anything God does is by definition good. And in Plotinus, God's will is anything that actualizes. That he, Plotinus identifies the will of the one with its essence and activity. Whatever it is that God does in his eternal activity, which doesn't have any potentiality to do anything else, it's an eternal simple decree. Anything that he does is goodness by definition. It doesn't, the creation that it, it spawns doesn't actually benefit the good in any way or doesn't benefit the one in any way. The good is a platonic 
concept, the Platonic uh, name of God. But the one does not benefit from outside himself. So what happens, you can't say, is from a desire to do something. That would also imply discursive thought. But that needs to be denied to God. Its wanting is perfectly and immediately identified with his activity. God wills what God wants. Uh, they're, they're indistinguishable terms. That, that's what it's saying here. Who else? Who else has that theology that we know of? Plotinus sees no conflict in saying both that the will of the one is limited in no way and that the one cannot do otherwise than it does. Can God do something new? That would add potentiality to God. God would have parts. God wouldn't be immutable. God would not be God. Classical theism. Will Duffy again add uh, badgered, badgered Matslick with these questions. Matslick could not answer the question because he didn't want to answer the question because the obvious answer in his theology is no, God cannot do new things. But Matt Slick is a coward and does not want to actually say the things that he actually believes. It doesn't do him good uh, rhetorically. He's a, he's a man of rhetoric. He's a man who, who cares about the phrasing and the phrasing always has to be positive about his theology. He will not admit his own beliefs. He's ashamed of his beliefs. What this means is that perfect activity has by definition no defect and doing otherwise. For the one would mean doing something imperfect. But it also means that the one does not refrain from doing anything. Where refraining would not necessarily be a defect but simply indicate an unselected possibility. In Calvinism, classic theology, God maximizes the goodness of the world. The world's a reflection of God's glory. God doesn't actually gain any glory from the world. But the world that exists exists because it is the maximally great universe to maximally glorify God in, in the Calvinist system. Plotinus has something very similar here that everything God has to actualize everything that's actualized. There's no imperfections that aren't actualized. There's nothing that, uh, if, if there were things that weren't actualized, which could have been actualized, which could have been better than other things, then God is deficient in some respect. Therefore, the world that was actualized is the world that can only be actualized. God can't actualize any different world than the one that is actualized. Plotinus interprets universal pro-noun as kata noun, given the fact that there is no time before which the universe existence. Providence is the functioning of the world according to the truths contained within intellect. So there is a providence within Plotinus, and you could equate this to the Calvinist idea of predestination, that everything must happen according to the eternal will of the one, according to the eternal decree, as we have seen. These are parallel concepts. The existence of the one guarantees providence, evidently because providence is a property of dependent existence. Second, while affirming that all things happen as the one wishes, that the, everything happens according to the will of God, right? He insists that it is not related to anything outside it, but rather is entirely related to itself alone. Though, though everything happens according to the will of the one, it's not in relation to the one. The one's not gaining or interacting or has relationships with the things that happens. This seems to mean that the effect of the divine will is present in all that exists without this producing a real relation between the one and everything else. Where have we heard this theology before? It's sounding so familiar. So familiar. What the one must know, in a manner of speaking, however, is that it is the goal of everything that exists and everything that could exist does exist, for it knows itself as activity that is boundless. 
that everything happens as the one wills follows from the one's infinite power. The one has omniscience in the respect that it knows all things that it wills. It wills the entire world to exist in a particular manner. It has basically this ungenerated, ineffable will that's identical to its essence, that uh, is timeless and non-discursive, non-generated, not from outside itself. Uh, this this is this is sounding this is sounding so familiar. From there, we get to the end of the chapter, but this is a fairly good book. I would suggest at least reading this chapter and understanding, trying to get familiar with the Platonistic ideas of the one, because we see it everywhere. Modern Christianity is almost entirely enamored with this type of thought, this type of thinking, this rationale. You see it in arguments. People who don't even understand metaphysics will resort to these arguments. How often do you hear people say that evil is the negation of the good? Things like that. That's coming directly from Platonistic Plotinus, Plotinus' own thinking, filtered through the lens of Augustine. But in summary, let's let's talk about the one. The one is simple. That means it has no parts, no compositeness. It's ineffable. We can't speak intelligibly about it. Its existence is not related. It doesn't actually gain anything from outside of itself. It doesn't have any dependencies. It doesn't have any relationships in which it could be deficient, in which there could be moving parts, which would create dependencies and change. Can't have anything like that. It's pure actuality. It has a will that it actualizes. It predestines everything to happen on earth. Not, not because it desires goodness, because its act is goodness, according to Plotinus. It has these powers such as omnipotence, in which it actually controls all things. Everything is fated. Everything has providence, quote-unquote, applied to it. And it has ungenerated knowledge of a unique type that uh, isn't of discursive thought. The, these are the attributes that we can apply to the one. And in traditional Christian theology... Uh, they're the identical, basically identical to the normal classical Christian picture of God. Why are they identical? Because, as Augustine writes, that uh, the only thing that Christianity gave him was Jesus. All else, his conception of God, was borrowed from the Platonists. That, that, that's what he literally wrote, and that's what we have today in the modern society. And he wasn't the only one. This is, this is very attractive thought to philosophers of the day, people who were high and mighty. Plotinus himself was a fairly popular teacher. Christians not so much, and so they're, they're hanging on to his coattails, trying to gain dominance and relevance at that time. But they adopted this popular theology, this popular way of looking at God. And does it align with the Bible? <laughs> the biblical authors had no knowledge of any of these concepts. Nowhere in the Bible do we see this. Nowhere. Anyways, questions, comments, put that below. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.